On the record, flips to the B side. Good morning. I'm Mia Lobel, and you're listening to B Side. This month, B Side goes extreme. extreme. With stories about sports that you won't find at the Olympics or the X Games, for that matter, anytime soon. Stay tuned for an action-packed half hour of pigeon racing, women's football, and pumpkin hurling. As on the record, flips to the B side. None of us here at B side are exactly what you would call extreme athletes. We have a swimmer, some cyclists, and a few softball fanatics, but don't expect any of us to climb Mount Everest anytime soon. However, we did rise to the challenge of this month's theme. That's right, we went bowling. Now, this may not seem extreme to you, and well, it didn't sound too extreme to us either. But Tamara Keith, Emily Gunnison, and I found that any sport can be extreme if you play it with the right attitude. We go up to the counter to get our lane assignment. Okay, two or ten and ten is twenty. We'll put you on lane number four. Okay. Right behind you. Is it always as busy at uh, ten Fridays. in the morning? Yeah. Wow. Every Friday. I was not expecting. I don't think I've ever been bowling before ten at night. <laughs> Would you ever consider bowling to be an extreme sport? Yes. It takes it's pressure sport. You know, especially if you're going up against other teams. You have to do your best. Well, if the guy handing out the shoes at the bowling alley says it's extreme. It must be. Tamara, Emily, and I head over to lane number four and select our weapons of choice. And I think this one is just right for me. Yeah, I'm just going to go with the golden one here. Oh, look. This ball actually says extreme. Whoa. Well, I'm going to go with the... Maybe Mia can take the extreme one. Oh, I definitely want the extreme one. How much does it weigh? Don't know. It could be heavy. Let me see. I can handle it. Oh, this is all mine. <laughs> extreme. Ugh. We lace up our shoes. Tamara has brought her own, by the way. She's definitely the most extreme of the three of us. We put our names in the computer and start bowling. I'm the first one up. Thank you very much. I got eight out of 10 down. You still have a chance to bowl a spare. Didn't happen. Emily is up next. Emily gets two gutter balls and Tamara follows with a strike. It's got to be the shoes. Some might argue that talent has everything to do with the equipment. But for the women of professional football, it mostly has to do with passion. We all know that football is generally considered to be a guy sport. But in 1985, a made-for-TV movie starring Helen Hunt tried to change that. The movie, in case you forgot, was Quarterback Princess. And now coming into the game at quarterback, number 10... Brand, 23 dive on one. Centers, ready? These days, women across the country are playing on professional football teams. It may not be as glamorous or popular as Monday night men's football, but the women playing it aren't complaining. Tamara has more. Meet fullback Brenda Westbrook. I'm five foot ten. I weigh two thirty. I'm fast as lightning, and I'm extremely explosive. And she's all muscle. By day, thirty-seven-year-old Brenda works at a restaurant, 
but her real passion is playing football for the Oakland Banshees. Like many women on the team, she's dreamed of playing football all her life, but never had the chance. As a child, she collected football trading cards, but her dad wouldn't let her play. He said football was a man's sport. So when Brenda heard about the Banshees, there was no holding her back. I am on fire. I have never been so excited in my entire life about a project as I am now. I mean, uh, it's like a dream come true. I've waited like my whole life. I've always thought, I wish I was a guy I could get to play football. Finally, I've got that chance. With names like the Biloxi Hurricanes, the Chattanooga Locomotion, and the San Francisco Tsunami, these professional teams are giving women a chance to do something they've never really been able to do before, tackle and hard. Brenda says despite the stereotypes, women can play football. They think, no, you could get injured, no. But we're a lot tougher than, than some of the past stereotypes that women wouldn't be strong enough to play it or we couldn't handle the contact, you know, of being hit. We wouldn't be able to play in pain. That's not true. We can do all of it. So if you're coming in rushing, you see them coming down, you push them down, you step over and come in with your hands up. Okay? That's what they're going to be trained to do. So if you guys get lower than them and they want to jump up in the air, you cut their ass low. That's why you got to stay low. It's a cool Wednesday night in Oakland and coach Brandon Heron is going over strategies for special teams plays. When he's not coaching women's football, Heron coaches a boys team. He says he treats all his players the same. Male or female, they have to be tough. Women are going to get stepped on with cleats on their shins, their necks, their hands, their forearms. They're going to get gashes. They're going to get sprains, bruises, the whole nine. And these women are coming out here and they're willing to go through that. And if they're willing to go through that, hey, that's the game right there. The women play by the same rules as the men's NFL. There are more than 50 teams nationwide and four competing leagues. To date, the leagues have no sponsors. The players had to buy their own uniforms, and no one is on salary. They play mostly on Saturdays in small stadiums at high schools and community colleges. Like Consumnus River College in Sacramento, the site of the home opener for the Sacramento Sirens. On this day, it's hot outside. The midday sun is beating down on the field, and the stands are packed. Kathy Poole came to the game to support one of her friends who plays for the Sirens. We thought that it was just going to be us and like 10 other people coming out to watch them. And my God, we can't even find a seat. It's so crowded out here. They look great. From the start, it's clear that this match between the Sacramento Sirens and the Rose City Wildcats isn't going to be much of a competition. The sirens are dominating. And as running back Kim Richard powers through her third touchdown, spectator Dennis Bowens seems thoroughly impressed. I mean, just, just looking at them play, just looking at them play, you wouldn't even know they're women. Sacramento Sirens, 21, Rose City Wildcats, nothing. Standing on the sidelines, defensive tackle Savitri Naviar says she isn't concerned with attendance or with her non-existent salary. I'm just trying to make history right now. I want my daughter to look back at this and say, you know, my mom did this and 
it was a great experience. Trying to let her know that she could do anything in life. You know, not just you got to be a cheerleader or, you know, I mean, you could play any sport you want to play. And what these women have wanted to do is play tackle football. They're all working day jobs and they drive their own cars to away games. But for them, it's more than worth it because they get to play the game they love. For B-Side, I'm Tamara Keith. Back at the bowling alley, Tamara is quickly taking a strong lead over Emily and me, barely. So the score after three rounds is, uh, I have 25, Emily has 12, and Tamara has 28. So actually, you know, despite that strike in the first round, it's pretty close between me and Tamara. There's something about calling it extreme that just like brings out a competitive spirit that's not normally there. Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah. Again, I just missed the last one. Just by five or six inches, that's all. That's it. It's nothing. Are you making fun of me? <laughs> While some of us compete over bowling balls, others get worked up over other heavy round objects, like pumpkins. While most Halloween pumpkins wind up smashed on sidewalks or in compost bins, each year a select few go on to a higher, some might say more extreme, calling. Matt McCleskey went to the wilds of rural Delaware to try out world championship Pumpkin Chunkin', a competition where people build elaborate contraptions to make pumpkins fly. A friend of mine in Washington, D.C. told me about the Pumpkin Chunkin'. We wanted to enter, but we found out we were too late. The firing line was full. We went anyway. The first thing we saw when we got there was a line of old school buses and flatbed trucks alongside this gigantic field. They all had these long things on the top that hung off both ends and made them look kind of like cranes. At first I wasn't quite sure what they were, but then I figured out they were gun barrels for really big guns, 100 foot long guns. That's when I realized these people were for real. One of the rules is that you can't use any explosives to launch your pumpkin. So instead, all the big guns are fired with compressed air. It's uh, basically a high-tech version of shooting a spitwad through a straw, only the spitwad is a pumpkin and the straw is a giant cannon. These things can shoot pumpkins almost a mile. You don't even see them when they come out of the barrel. The best way to tell where they go is to look for the puff of dust where the pumpkin hits the ground. The air cannons weren't the only pumpkin chunkers there, though. My friends and I were checking out some of the other contraptions, bicycle-powered centrifuges and giant catapults, when this rugged-looking guy came walking by wearing a Viking hat, kind of like a beanie, only with horns on both sides. We struck up a conversation, and it turns out Eric, who of course we called Eric the Viking, had helped build one of the machines. He asked if we wanted to help him run it. We were in.
This pumpkin launcher was a medieval weapon called the trebuchet. The word looks French and seems like it should be pronounced trebuchet, but here in America, it's called the trebuchet. Anyway, Eric built his from a 13th century Viking design. Here's how it worked. He had a couple hundred pounds of bricks in a big wooden box. The box was attached to a 15-foot-long pole with a leather sling on its end. That's where he put the pumpkin, in the sling. He'd turn a big wooden-handled wheel and slowly crank the bricks up in the air. Then he'd release them, and the pole would shoot up like an arm and throw the pumpkin out of the sling, sending it hurling 300 feet away. Of course, as soon as my friends and I showed up, the heavy lifting became our job. We must have turned that wheel about a thousand times. We kept up the bombardment until the field was littered with smashed pumpkins. But what we hadn't realized was that lifting all those hundreds of pounds of bricks up in the air over and over again was going to be really hard work. We thought Eric was just being friendly, you know, giving us neophytes a chance to chunk pumpkins, and, and he certainly was. But we quickly realized there were other motives at work. We were the free labor. In this medieval scenario, we were basically the serfs. We strained and groaned and wore blisters on our hands, but it was totally worth it. How often can you say you spent a crisp fall afternoon launching pumpkins with a medieval assault weapon? The best part, though, was the praise from Eric the Viking. He told us if it really were a siege, we would have been the first ones inside the city walls feasting on our captured dinner. I don't know, but I'm willing to bet it would have been made out of pumpkins. Matt McCleskey is a freelance radio producer based in Washington, D.C. listening to KALX 90.7 FM. Stay tuned as On the Record flips to the B-side. Listening to B-Side. I'm Mia Lobel, and this month we're going extreme. Talking about our version of extreme sports. Tamara Keith, Emily Gunnison, and I continue battling it out at the bowling alley. Emily exchanges her ball for a new one, a bit heavier and a lot more extreme. And suddenly things start to look up. Emily! Oh my gosh! It's the ball! <laughs> You just bowled a strike. You bowled a strike. Emily, how does it feel? Not too much excitement going on here. I've seen so many of them that, you know, once you actually do it, sort of like, oh, you know, I've gone across to the other side. But you lie. The look of elation on your face when you saw that strike cannot be captured on tape. Your face is still red. (laughs) And then Tamara, who'd been kicking our butts until now, starts to flail. Oh, my gosh. Oh, the misery. Oh, the sadness. I think this is the turn of events in our game. 
There's been a shift in the power. The tension builds. How do you feel, Tamara? I just bowled a gutter ball, and I'm feeling pretty deflated right now, actually. And my shoes may not be able to save me now. So if you're still thinking we're crazy for calling bowling extreme, you're going to love this sport. Pigeon racing. If you're under 40, you probably have no idea what I'm talking about right now, or if bird racing should even be considered a sport. Caitlin Kim recently visited some pigeon racing enthusiasts in Connecticut to investigate. The first time I ever heard about racing pigeons was Sidney Sheldon's book, If Tomorrow Comes. The main characters of the book are international jewel thieves, and they use a racing pigeon to smuggle a stolen diamond. But when I called Harold Gabucci of the Wallingford Pigeon Racing Club in Connecticut, and his wife told me that I'd have to speak loudly because he's hard of hearing, I knew no international jewel thieves here. In fact, the meeting of the Wallingford Pigeon Racers looks more like the 60th reunion of a high school baseball team, except that their current sport is not exactly America's pastime. The sport is fading out. Now the younger fellows want to don't seem to be interested. Look around. We're all getting old. There's no young people here. We have one fellow, how old is Bill? Maybe 40? Thereabouts. And it, it's just a dying sport. 71-year-old Bill Hanley of Hamden is a retiree who's had pigeons since he was a kid. His pigeons may look and sound like your average park pigeon, but what makes these birds special is that they're homing pigeons. They can be taken hundreds of miles away and still find their way back to their coop. And this is the premise of pigeon racing. Just imagine something like this, but 10 times louder. There's no set course, and Hanley says he's amazed at how they fly home to their coop without the help of a map or anything. There's an awful lot of satisfaction to know that your bird flew from Cleveland, Ohio, back to your house. You know, I mean, that really, could you do it? I mean, I could, if they dropped me off in the middle of Cleveland, Ohio, and told me to drive my way home with no street signs, I'd never make it. Pigeons do, you know? The Wallingford Pigeon Club holds races every week. The winner gets bragging rights and has to buy the group pizza. This week, the pigeons are flying 200 miles from upstate New York back to their owners' coops in Connecticut. But before they're set free, the birds have to be prepped. It starts the night before Saturday's race at the Wallingford Clubhouse, a big red barn on a cul-de-sac of trim, well-manicured houses. There, Hanley, Gabucci, and all the club's other pigeon racers are getting the birds ready. 36. Okay. It's like an AARP pigeon preparing assembly line. They use a metal contraption that resembles a medieval torture device to attach a numbered rubber band to each pigeon's leg. This is called countermarking. Each club member can race between 20 and 30 pigeons. The men go through and label each of the 200 birds smoothly. But the pigeons are looking pretty ruffled. They're feisty. Yeah, they don't like to be handled. They want to go home. <laughs> Once this is done, all the birds are put into a truck, a pigeon mobile home of sorts, and driven to the starting line or point of liberation. Then at 8 a.m. Saturday morning, the birds are released all at once, flying at speeds of up to 50 miles per hour. It's each pigeon for himself. Back in Connecticut, around noon, Gabucci and his buddies mosey out to their backyards and begin to wait for their homing pigeons to, well, come home. Gabucci says the pigeons aren't always as eager to land as he'd like them to be. The pigeon can come home. You, you could wait 10 minutes with it. It probably don't land right away. It might fly around in circles. Or it could go sit in a tree. These are valuable minutes wasted. You see, once the bird does land in the coop, it's the owner's turn to show some speed and agility. Every second counts as the owner removes the numbered rubber band from the pigeon's leg and clocks the bird in using a special pigeon racing clock that's coordinated with all the other racers. Bill Hanley tells me 
he has a system in place to make sure his birds finish first. You are right next to your coop. You are right on top of your coop. You have your timing clock right up underneath the landing platform. And the minute that, the second that bird comes in, you rush and grab the counter mark off him as fast as you can possibly do it. Kill yourself doing it if you have to, but get that band off. Put it in the clock and bump the clock. This all sounds very exciting, but as you might have already guessed, pigeon racing isn't really a spectator sport. In fact, you can get bored, or at least a strained neck like I did, from staring up at the sky, just waiting. Waiting for a pigeon to appear on the horizon. Anywhere. Talking with Bill Hanley in his backyard on the day of the race, it's clear that he loves his birds. He often spends hours sitting out by the pigeon coop, just to make sure the birds don't get lost or become a hawk's latest meal. Hanley doesn't race that much because he considers his pigeons, who are all named Guy, his pets, and he doesn't want to lose them. I like just letting them fly around my house, to be honest with you. I really do. I think that's just, just beautiful. Does your wife like that? So she doesn't mind at all. Keeps me out of trouble. <laughs> but as much as Hanley loves his guys, others aren't always impressed by pigeons. I mean, a lot of people call them rats with wings. It's a description Hanley hates. After all, he says defiantly, rats weren't used in the world wars to transfer information that helped save lives. Then there's the, how do I put this gently, poop problem. It's not much fun to clean a coop the size of a large walk-in closet. I can attest to that personally. While Hanley and I waited for his pigeons to finish their race, I took a tour of the pigeon coop, and Hanley had to help clean off some of the evidence of that visit. I guess that's a hazard, right? Pigeon doo-doo on yeah. recording equipment. There we go. That's it? That one right there. See, that stuff doesn't bother me. <laughs> it doesn't bother me at all. Standing in Hanley's yard, it hit me. This is the perfect sport for couch potatoes like myself. I could sit out in Hanley's yard, read a book, get some sun, enjoy a nice summer afternoon until a pigeon landed on the platform. And I might have stayed to watch all his pigeons finish the race, except for the unshakable urge to go home and wash pigeon poop out of my hair. For B-Side, I'm Caitlin Kim. I love pigeons, and I love how they walk, and I've created a really cool dance called doing the pigeon, doing the pigeon, and dancing a little smidgen of the kind of ballet sweeps me away, doing the pigeon, and doing the People may smile, but I don't mind. They'll never understand the kind of fun I find. Doing the pigeon. I love it. Doing the pigeon. It's me. Doing the pigeon every day. Oh, boy, is that exciting. <laughs> As the B-side bowling match comes to a close, surprisingly, I come out ahead of Tamara and Emily. Final score, a respectable 82 for Tamara, 40 for Emily. And 107 for Mia Lobel. I can't believe it. No, actually, I have to admit, like, I normally don't play this well, and I think the key is playing at 10 in the morning. We're far more alert right now. We are on our game, and we're drinking coffee instead of beer. That's exactly what I was going to say. I think that's the trick. While I was pretty happy about winning the game, 107 isn't exactly a bowling score to brag about. In fact, if you total our three scores, they don't add up to the score of one bowler in the neighboring lane. Can we say extremely bad? As we turn in our shoes, 
the alley manager tries to be encouraging. I was just going to tell you, I'm afraid we didn't bowl particularly well. It's all right. We can still sign you for a league if you want. <laughs> the loser league? <laughs> sure, why not? How, how would we do against other teams? Uh, well, you'd had fun. <laughs> I don't think you get points for having fun. No, no, but you have a good time. And that's what the thing is. You come to bowl to have a good time. Unfortunately, we have a little bit of competitiveness between the three of us, so we leave so feeling the, a little... The best uh, person won, so uh, the other two can buy you something to eat, huh? That's right. How about breakfast? <laughs> Before I reap the rewards of my fabulous day at the lanes, we have one more story for you. And this one might actually qualify as truly extreme. Emily Gunnison brings us this profile of the dangerous world of bull riding. Late August, Sacramento. It's the final weekend at the state fair. The sky is thick and dusty and the air is hot. The crowds move slowly, as sticky as the cotton candy for sale from the carts on the midway. It's about 30 minutes before a bull fest, the final rodeo event at the fair, and a couple bull riders are standing outside the arena, rounding up people to come in and watch. Clad in form-fitting jeans and a giant belt buckle, Brad Blankenship is looking relaxed for a man who is going to be riding on the back of a 1,500-pound mad bull within the hour. Brad is 23 years old, a seven-year veteran of bull riding. And from his attitude, you'd think it's no big deal. My only big fear with bulls is bulls with big horns on them. Don't like them too much, but I ride them if I get them, so. Have you gotten mauled before? Yeah, I took a horn uh, to the chin right underneath it, missed the jugular by about a quarter inch. Hey, no problem. He was back a week later. Apparently, he lives by the mantra tattooed on his arm. A country boy can survive. Since that little accident is in the past, he can gear up for tonight properly. Well, before the ride, I usually just sit there, relax, and try and clear my head of anything and focus on what my job's going to be, and that's riding my bull. And basically getting on the bull varies from bull to bull. You have bulls who don't like to be in the chute and have people on them, so they'll fight you and rough you up in there. And then you got bulls that'll just stand still and wait for you to call for it and then get the job going. So what kind of equipment is on there's a There's a saddle and or something to sit on? Nothing at all? Okay, so you just have... on the bull's back. And then you have the rope. And you got the rope. Outside of our rope, we got our boots, our spurs, and our shaps. And our protective vest. Some of the boys uh, will wear a helmet. I prefer, I wear a helmet now. And that's a good thing, because when Bullfest gets underway and it's Brad's turn to ride, he and his bull are not taking the easy route. Tornado is not one of those mellow bulls Brad talks about. The beast is freaking out. And he's got big horns. Wakes for a big uh, bull now. Now he's got the bull today, Brad, they call Tornado. Boy, and he is really kicking up a fuss in here. Well, there goes my story. In case you missed that, Brad got stomped, and the last time I saw him, he was getting hauled off by the paramedics. He barely lasted a second. I thought this guy was going to be good. Some 17-year-old kid from Southern California was the only bull rider to stay on the whole eight seconds required to qualify, so he won by default. A couple thousand dollars and a bottle of Jack Daniels. 
I thought Brad needed that more than the kid. I've got to say, I was a little disappointed after my first exposure to bull riding. I thought these bull riders were going to be hardcore. I thought they were extreme. Maybe doing something this irrational makes you extreme. But after I watched almost every one of them get thrown, I had to wonder, so what? All that music and sawdust and whiskey, all those people in cowboy hats and broken arms and missed jugulars, wouldn't we be better off if we let the cattle hang out in the pasture instead? Yee-haw. The preacher man says it's the end of time And the Mississippi River, she's a gold grind The interest is up and the stock market's down And you're only getting mugged if you go downtown I live back in the woods, you see A woman and the kids and the dogs and me I got a shotgun, a rifle, and a four-wheel drive And a country boy can survive Country folks can survive That's all for this month's edition of B-Side. Our crew is Dave Gilson, Lissa Mudd, and Claudine Zapp. Tamara Keith is our senior producer. Our theme music was composed by Dave Kaufman. I'm your host, Mia Lobel. Thanks for listening. To learn more about B-Side and see pictures from today's show, check out our website at b-side-radio.org. That's the letter B, S-I-D-E-radio.org. B-Side will return November 27th with a show about freaks and geeks. Homemade wine and country boy can survive. Country folks can survive. Because you can't starve us out. Virginia coal mines and the Rocky Mountains and the western skies And we can skin a buck, we can run a trot line And a country boy can survive Country folks can survive My magic extreme ball is back behind the pins Just sort of waffling around I think it's stuck. Oh, wait, here it is. I thought we'd been spared the end of this game. We wouldn't have to play anymore. Get it spared. (laughs)